It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Famously, those are the opening words to Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, which, which tells a contrasting tale of, of London and Paris during the French Revolution. And as we've looked at Genesis in the early chapters, the last couple of chapters over the, the last month or so, we, we could say that they've really told a story as well of a tale of two cities, as Augustine called them, the city of God and the city of man. Or, or perhaps as we've seen them, the, the line of Seth and the line of Cain, or perhaps even better, going all the way back to Genesis 3, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Something happens in chapter 6, though. Something happens where these two separate cities seem to converge. Our sermon text is Genesis 6, 1 through 8. But before we look at it, let's turn to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we know that we can know no thing unless you show it to us. And so, we ask that you'd speak to us today. Open our eyes. Remove the scales of unbelief. And cause us to see. Take our, our dead hearts of stone and turn them to flesh through the power of your spirit. I pray that you would speak to us today. Speak. And give us ears to hear. Lord, we just ask that your power would be present in your word today, for we need it. And so we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, the living word of God, amen. Here now as I read from Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, this is the inspired word of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the Mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, today's passage is one that is, is one of the, the most notoriously difficult passages of Scripture in terms of, of understanding what all the specifics refer to. It's the kind of passage when, when you look at it as a preacher, you're like, oh, good. Right? You, hit the, you hit the commentaries and you see somebody like Gordon Wenham say in, of verse 3, quote, almost every word in this statement has been the subject of controversy, end quote. And you think, oh my, I thought verse 3 was one of the easier verses. And, and you begin to break into a cold sweat as you realize that I'm in trouble here. I don't, I don't think I can answer all the questions I have. When I, I looked at this text at the beginning of the week, it's eight verses long, I had no fewer than seven perplexing questions that leapt out at me from this passage. The sons of God and the daughters of men, what exactly is it talking about there? What, what is this 120 years referring to? The Nephilim, who are they? The mighty men of old? They say this like I'm supposed to know who these guys were. The depth and breadth of depravity? Really? Only evil all the time? Could that really be true? The Lord regretted. He was sorry. What, what exactly does that mean? Finally, how exactly did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Well, as it turns out, we will indeed examine many of these questions. Well, actually, we'll examine all of them. And some of them we might wrestle out a concrete answer to. Most of them we won't. But I, I think that the reality is, what's most important, that as we examine these questions, we need to not lose the forest for the trees. Because the purpose of this passage lies not in answering each one of these in questions in particular. Rather, the purpose in this passage, I think, lies in asking two other questions. First, what exactly is this whole text about? And secondly, how does that apply to us? If we can answer those questions, we'll be doing well. And, and I think that as we get into those questions, we need to see the, the bigger picture, the bigger context and as we do, we'll see it speaks of the severity of sin, the reality of judgment, and the blessings of grace. The severity of sin, the reality of judgment, and the blessings of grace. Most of our time together this morning will be spent talking about the severity of sin. Oh good, you say. That's exactly what I wanted to hear about. It's a feel-good message, I guess. 
Now, not a feel-good message at all. Because our sin is extremely severe. Right, this passage ends with Noah, and we all know Noah. We know Noah, of course, from the flood. We'll get there in the next few weeks. We'll be talking about that. We're not going to get there today. If we had gone one verse further than we did, though, we would have come across a passage, or the beginning of that verse says, these are the generations of Noah. And perhaps we're reminded how back in Genesis 5, verse 1, at that point we read, these are the generations of Adam. And maybe if we're paying really close attention, we remember back in chapter 2, verse 4, where it said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And we see this structure throughout the book of Genesis. These were the generations, or in some versions, this is the account of. And it's going to pop up again in chapter 10 two times, two times each, in fact, in chapter 10 and 11 and 25 and 36 and once more in chapter 37. And, and we begin to see that the book of Genesis is really structured around these. The Hebrew word is a toledot, which means generations or, or account. And, and we see that the book of Genesis is structured around them. And there's some, some debate as to whether they, they mark the beginning of a passage or the end of the passage. Regardless, what we see from where it is in Genesis 6, verse 9, we see that verses 1 through 8 probably goes better with chapter 5 than with the rest of chapter 6. And so we need to kind of think back. Chapter 5, what was that? What happened in chapter 5? Well, remember, it was a genealogy. It was a genealogy that ran through the line of Seth. Ran through Seth, the appointed one, Enoch, the one who walked with God, Lamech, the one who trusted that out of the ground that the Lord has cursed relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands would come through this son of his. And it lands eventually on that son, Noah. Before we get to Noah and the familiar study of story of the flood, though, we have to set the stage for it. That's what kind of the purpose of Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is, is to set the stage for the flood, to show why the flood was necessary, to show why God acted in such a, a cataclysmic way. We can all agree that a, a, a flood like that was no minor thing. So we set the stage, beginning in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. That seems normal enough. Nothing strange there, right? We, we kind of talked about that a little bit. They, they had children. The whole genealogies is that idea. So, so, so they, they, they have daughters as well. We've kind of focused on the sons in the past, but now we're talking about the daughters as well. Makes sense. That's going to happen. Then verse 2 says... The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And there's that first question that I had. The, the sons of God and the daughters of men. What exactly is it talking about here? And there's really three different explanations that kind of are the main explanations different people have for, for who these sons of God are. The oldest view that dates back to to church fathers like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and, and Ambrose, they, they felt that the sons of God, as it were, were fallen angels. Okay, so the idea was that these were fallen angels and, 
And the reason they thought that was when you look in the Old Testament and it talks about uh, sons of God, using that phrase, most commonly that is to whom it refers to. It refers to angels. And so they figured that these must be fallen angels that, that take the daughters of men, women, for their wives and, and basically see it as, as kind of a, a second assault, just like when, when Satan in the garden came against Eve, here's a second wave of assault by the demonic forces. Um, that, that's kind of the first viewpoint. There are some who said, well, I don't know, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. After all, there are no other angels mentioned in this passage, nowhere else where, where they're brought up. It kind of comes out of nowhere, if indeed that is the case. And, and it says that they took wives. They, they got married, essentially, is what it says. And, and remember what Jesus says in Matthew 22, in a parallel passage in Mark 12. Uh, he speaks about how in the resurrection we never, neither marry nor are given in majors, marriage, but are like the angels. Right? The idea that angels aren't physical beings. They're not corporeal beings. They don't get married. Plus, there is the fact that it sounds like if we see the sons of God here as being angels that are fallen angels that have caused this great sin to come about, it seems to put the onus or the, the, the blame, as it were, on these fallen angels for what's happened. But very clearly, from the rest of this passage and in the weeks to follow, we'll see, it is man who is to be blamed for the judgment of God. So there's a second interpretation. A second interpretation comes that, that these are kings, royal personages from the the line of Cain. And, and so that they're in that line of Cain and they, they are taking in these wives to be part of their, their royal harem, as it were. So they're partaking in uh, a royal polygamy. And that's the idea. The I, idea is what was mainly espoused by Jewish rabbis. This was the main thought taught by them of what's going on here. Ancient Near Eastern literature often referred to uh, kings as being sons of God. Kings have always referred to them as themselves as such throughout different cultures. And the idea here is that, that the kings just took for themselves whatever wives they wanted and brought them into their harems, obviously not structured after the picture of marriage that God has given us. And so that this was causing great problems. Now again, there's, there's people who speak against this, giving the point that there's no evidence that there were kings in the line of Cain, first of all. Secondly, just it seems like kind of an awkward way to say it. Why didn't he just come out and say that when he wrote it? And finally, the fact that the Old Testament never refers to kings as deities. So there's a third point of view, a third reason. Finally, we'll get to this. If you made me decide which one of the three I think it is, this is the one I'd land on, but I'm not at all 100% sure. But the third point of view is that the sons of God are the children of the line of Seth that we talked about last week. You can see how it contextually would lead us in this direction, if indeed this is pulling out of that line, where the, the line of Seth is, is those who are following after God. Perhaps even if we go back to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, you'll remember that when they mention Seth in the genealogy, they, they say how, how it was then that, that people began to call upon the Lord. 
There are some scholars who say actually the proper translation there isn't that it was then that they began to call upon the Lord, but rather it was then that they began to be called by the name of the Lord. And if that is indeed what they're saying there, then it would make all the sense in the world here that they would be referred to as the sons of God. Matthew Henry, R.C. Sproul, both hold to this view. Uh, so, I mean, there's some, some pretty big, big weights, heavyweights that, that, that think that this is the right idea. Um, it's given in the context of a godly line having been, been strongly established. And so, like I said, if I had to pick one, this is what I'd pick. But, again, as I said at the beginning, this isn't the main thrust of the whole passage. Whatever the answer is, here's the point. God's good gift of marriage is being distorted and, and perverted and reshaped so that it will meet the intentions of sinful man rather than the purposes of a holy God. Right? Marriage was given to man as a means of companionship, as a means of, of the foundation of the family, but also, as we see in Ephesians 5, ultimately given so that in and through it we might proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, reflecting his relationship with his bride, the church, demonstrating his self-sacrificing love, which draws out from us an honoring admiration and respect and support, a, a complete giving of oneself to and for another, and an all-encompassing and indissoluble union wherein we are joined to one another with such intimacy that our very identity is changed. This is what marriage is supposed to proclaim. This is the purpose for marriage and for sexuality as a whole, for that matter, and sadly our culture has, has perverted this so that, that we think that marriage exists for me to enjoy for my purposes and sexuality exists for me to enjoy for my purposes to satisfy my desires on my timing whenever I want, however I want it. And that's exactly what was going on here. Verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Right? The point isn't just that they realized that they were attractive for the first time. They, oh my goodness, women are beautiful? I hadn't realized that. No, obviously that's not the case. Adam, when Eve was first given to him, he breaks into poetry. Right? He said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But what we see going on here is really the, the connotation of the sinfulness of what's happening in that taking whomever they want, right? It, it follows the, the archetypal sin of, of Genesis 3, right? Remember back in Genesis 3, verse 6, what does it say about Eve? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. And she took of its fruit and ate. You catch the pattern there? She saw it was good and beautiful. 
and she took it. What do we see here? In 6.2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took with their wives any they chose. You see, the, the idea is Eve saw something appealing to her eyes, and she took it for her own purposes, just as Adam did after her. It didn't matter what God's plans were, what God's instructions were, what God's designs for it were. And again, here in Genesis 6, verse 2, we see the exact same thing. They saw something that was beautiful in their eyes, and they took it for themselves for their own purposes. There's a total dehumanization of women in this, in this act here. Do you see it? I, I mean, they, they, they aren't seeing these daughters of men as being co-heirs of the kingdom of God and fellow image bearers of God Almighty. No, they're seeing them as, as objects of their, of their desire and something to be taken for their purposes. It's a sinful pattern. It's a sinful pattern that we see throughout Genesis, that we see throughout the Bible, and throughout the world today, right? We see it in, in Genesis with Abraham, who, who takes his wife, who is beautiful, Sarah, and, and he knows she's beautiful, and he knows that Pharaoh's going to think she's beautiful, and so he, he says, well, I'll just give her to Pharaoh, so he leaves me alone, right? He treats his wife as, as this, this commodity to be owned, to be used for his purposes. And then he does it again later in life with Abimelech. And then his son Isaac does the same thing as well. We see David do similar things with Bathsheba where he sees her and takes her for himself because, because his purposes, his desires are all that really matters. And then we see his son Solomon doing the same kind of thing as he takes a thousand women to be a part of his harem. Right? And these are the good guys. It is an endemic thing in the human nature and it's certainly present in our world today. We look at our culture, we see the ads, we see the magazines, we see the billboards, the TV, and we see women reduced to their sexuality and made to be a commodity to be used by men for their purposes. There's an epidemic of pornography throughout the culture today that merely reinforces this and and we see that, that on the internet, you see the stats, it's, it's mind-boggling how, how pornography, there's more porn sites than anything else on the internet. There is just a, an overwhelming presence of it. And, and some people say, well, who is it harming anyway? Right? It's just me doing it. Well, it harms, it harms our relationship with God first and foremost. Secondly, it, it, it harms yourself because, because you are having your brain rewired to think in a different way about that whole topic. And finally, it, it hurts women. It hurts women because it hurts the way a man would relate to his wife, for sure. But secondly, just in the fact that, that women are, are taken and are ushered into this industry and the stats there are just heartbreaking. I, I, I got some of these stats this week. 90% of women who work in the industry have been sexually abused before the age of 18. 70% of the women who work in the industry 
have simply aged out of foster care and have nowhere left to turn. Uh, we don't know the exact numbers, but, but many, many, many women that are involved in that whole industry are actually enslaved in it, have been, have been basically entrapped and enslaved. And we further that when we don't do anything about it. And on Father's Day especially, I think it's incumbent upon us to be, to be remembering that, that every one of these women is the daughter of a man. There's a man who is her father. And it's up to fathers and brothers to act like fathers and brothers. We need to see that we within the church, at the very least, are taking this seriously. That's another stat that was heartbreak. I saw that I think it was 60% of men who self-identified as evangelicals have actively been viewing pornography in the last month in the study I saw. The anger of a holy God burns hot against such a sin. We need to know that. It does in our day, and it did in Genesis 6. In verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And we'll come back to that in a minute, but first we want to remember this original context. Moses writes to the people of God there. They're on the doorstep of coming into the promised land. They spent the 40 years we talked about before wandering in the wilderness, and he knows that, that they're going to face certain temptations as they come into the promised land now. They're going to be, be the same temptations that, that we face. And they basically fall into one category. It's going to be trusting their eyes instead of trusting God. Right? They're going to be tempted by the lust of their eyes to enter into unholy alliances with ungodly peoples. And they're going to be tempted to give in to the fear that they see when they, when they see the people that they behold. Right, just like we spoke of in our unison scripture reading. That's what happened 40 years prior. Right? And we saw even there the, the Nephilim. And, and they show up again here. And that's another question we have. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. But wait, wait a second. Who, who are these Nephilim? Well, some say that, that this perhaps are the offsprings of the sons and the sons of God and the daughters of men. That could be, but not necessarily. We do know this for sure that they were the mighty men of old. Well, that doesn't clear things up. <laughs> Other than this, they're translated as giants. They were mighty. They were powerful. And whether, whether it's just physically powerful or in positions of power, they were men of renown. And we see that even in this time and place of spiritual breakdown, there were great accomplishments. They did great things. They did amazing things. And it's just like we saw in chapter 4 in the line of Cain. Remember all the technological and industrial advances that they made? Even though they were, they were not walking with God, they still accomplished great things, impressive things. Ungodly people can be beautiful, and they can be accomplished. They can be well thought of in having families and building civilization and still be utterly lost still be utterly lost, which points us to the fact that as the church, we need to 
Stop chasing after the world and its goals. And rather seek after the Lord. Remember when Jesus was rebuked by Peter? Jesus had said, you know, well, the Son of Man needs to go and die and be raised again. And Peter says, no, Lord, that'll never do. What did Jesus say to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is a perpetual problem we have, setting our mind on the things of man. We see the world around us and, and their goals and their dreams, and we accept them as our own. But God says to us in his word, on, on Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? The Gentiles worry about those things. The world worries about those things. But your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We need to stop coveting the ways of the world. Realize that the lost are indeed lost. We need to realize the depth of depravity and sin. Right, that was another one of our questions. The Lord, verse 5, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Every intention was only evil continually? That's strong language. That's strong language. Could that possibly be true? Now, now, yes, it is. Now, that's not to say that, that they don't do anything good, right? We already covered that. They were the men of renown. They, they can do good things, perhaps. But the reality is that apart from God, even the good things we do have no merit whatsoever. You see, because, because what is evil but that which leads us away from God? And oftentimes... We think that we're, we're building up our own merit. We're doing good things, right? We're going to go do, I'm going to go give blood and I'm going to give money to this charity and I'm going to go feed the poor, feed the hungry, and, and I'm going to uh, go help, help some kids study and do their homework. And I'm, I'm going to do all these good deeds and then God will think I'm great. And if that's what we're doing, then all your good deeds are thoroughly evil because they have driven you away from God. Because there is no way that you can, in and of yourself, be right before him. Because you are a sinner, and he is holy, and no amount of goodness will bridge that gap. You see, it's, it's like this. I was thinking about this this week. My, my, my children are, are great students. They take after their mom and not their dad, and I'm so thankful for that. I was an okay student. You know, I was like... That's good, but not great. You know, I, you know, B plus kind of student. You know, that, that's where I was. 
And I think that's where a lot of us are. You know, we're, we're kind of like in life, we're kind of a B plus. You know, we're not, we're not good all the time. You know, we lose our temper. We, we say some things we shouldn't say. We do some things we shouldn't do. We're not perfect, certainly not an A plus, but, but a solid B plus. And we think that, you know what, if Jesus can just come along and be my extra credit assignment, right? He'll just boost my grade up. You know, I, I, I take my B plus and I give my B plus to God. And he says, well, here, I'll give you some extra points in Jesus. And that boosts us up to an A and we're good. I think we think that way. But the reality is we are not B plus students. We are failures. We have a big F. We don't need some extra points to boost our grade up. We need our failure to be covered altogether. And we need somebody else to take the test for us. And that's what Jesus has done. That's what he did. He took the test for us. And he lived a perfect life. Perfect in every way, every day, every moment. Never sinning. And then he died for us to cover our sinful record. To make our sins which were red as scarlet, as white as snow. That we might have his holiness. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. For, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a cost it came at, though. What a cost. Jesus had to take on human flesh. He had to be broken and bleed and die. That shows us how serious God is about sin. How serious he is. And why it is when, when our hearts are evil, his heart is grieved. And verse 6 says that he regretted he made man on the earth. He grieved him to his heart. I think there's, there's somewhat of an anthropomorphism here. We don't, we don't know. I mean, God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, he doesn't change what he thinks. He's the same all the time. But I think it pained his heart in much the same way as it pained the heart of Christ when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus. And in the same way that Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept for their lostness. But this much is sure. Our sin displeases him. And brings about his judgment, his judgment which is severe and his judgment that is real. Remember, I said we come back to verse 3 where God said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Some people think that this refers to the, the maximum age that he'd allow people to live to. Possibly that's what's going on here. Although there are a few people who live beyond that after that. So, so that does have a little bit of a problem. Others suggest that perhaps that is the duration of time until his judgment came in the flood. He's going to give them 120 years to get things squared away, and then it's coming. Either way, we know that his judgment is secure, is severe. He says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and cre creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry I made him. We see an act of uncreation is coming. He's, he's uncreating. You can see how serious the sin is. The sin of man is so serious that God doesn't just say, 
Well, I'm going to wipe out man because of it. He says, I'm going to wipe clear the whole of creation. So serious is man's sin. Finally, we do see the blessings of grace very quickly here. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the King James Version, it actually says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, because Noah found favor not because Noah was great, right? Because Noah's a human being. He's a man. He's a person. We've already seen how the thoughts of man apart from God were only evil continually. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord said, I am going to be faithful to my promises. I am going to be faithful, and so I have to work through somebody. Not because he is great, but because I am great. And I will work through Noah, and I will show him my favor. And I will show him my blessing. And I will show him my grace. And he should respond to that in faithfulness and love, just as we should, having been shown the grace of God, respond to that in faithfulness and love. In a minute we'll sing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. And I think we get it right easily that we, we think, well, Jesus should reign over all the earth, right? From, from here to the setting of the sun, everywhere. But sometimes we forget that we need him to reign deep within ourselves. We need to make sure that Jesus is reigning in our hearts, that he is guiding our steps, that he is directing our paths, and that the wisdom we seek is not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of the one who is wisdom personified, the word of God, who has become flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins, and who rose from the dead, who reigns on high even now and has sent his spirit to dwell within any who trust in him. If you've not trusted in him, I I urge you to do so today. Trust in him no matter what your background is, no matter what your sin is. Trust in him. Take it to the cross and leave it there. Know the salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus and walk with him. so that he might truly reign in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we we do seek your kingship. We seek your kingship over all of our lives. We long for you not just to work in the lives of others, turning them to you, but Lord, we long for you to work in our lives. Help us to see better your glory. Help us to know better your grace. Help us to experience more of your love so that we might, in turn, reflect your glory and be mirrors of your grace. That we might love you And love our neighbor just as you have first loved us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you rise with me now as we sing hymn number 417?